Welcome to JPI 5, a podcast featuring five questions and five answers regarding the California water industry, risk pools, risk management, and more. To support 5, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, share episodes with others, and leave us a review. Five stars, of course. Thank you for listening. Now, please welcome our host and guest for today. Thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of JPIA 5. We're taking a break from our regular format to bring you highlights from a recent webinar presented by JPIA General Counsel Rob Greenfield regarding new laws impacting our JPIA members in 2024. If you didn't already know, JPIA offers numerous webinars and live instructor-led classes every month for our members. You can access the training calendar via our website at www.aquajpia.com forward slash training. In the meantime, here is Rob Greenfield with new employment laws in 2024. Thank you, Sarah. Just a quick disclaimer. Remember, don't take legal advice from a webinar or a podcast. Consult with your attorneys. A couple things that I found interesting. This was the first of a two-year session for the California legislature. As you may or may not know, they work in two-year increments. So bills that didn't get through this year may still show up next year after they've been tweaked or they've gotten more support. The governor was given 840 bills that went through the legislature and he vetoed or, or did not sign almost a third of the bills that were on his desk. Also interesting is workers' compensation. Approximately every 10 years, worker compensation gets a, a pretty thorough review by the California legislature, and we get new statutes, usually involving new presumptions, new payouts, and various things. That should have happened this past session, but did not. And the assessment is that the reason it did not happen is because this was the first legislative session that anybody currently in office, because of term limits, they keep changing. This was the first session where they had a budget deficit as opposed to a surplus. As a result, there was no worker comp reform. Next year, we are projected for another deficit, so that may hold off on worker comp reform for another year, which is good, meaning that we don't have to discuss it today. Also, because of the deficit, because of the vetoes, there was not a lot of new legislation. There were some good cases. So this year, we're a little more focused on case law than on statutes. All right, given all that, sick leave, uh, paid sick leave. Big change here is that we went from three days and 20 hours to five days and 40 hours. So for your seasonal workers, your part-time, they now get up to five days and 40 hours. The choice is yours as to whether you want to front load that's paid sick leave or have the employees accrue it. It is always the employer's choice how to deal with sick leave and paid time off as far as front load versus accrual. I know this year on the employee hotline, which we will be promoting a lot during these calls, and 
If you have questions at any time, want to email, it's EPLHotline at AquaJPIA.com. EPL, Employment Practices Liability Hotline. EPL Hotline, all one word, at AquaJPIA.com. And the call was that the district provided 12 vacation days and sick days a year, and they front-loaded it, and the employee quit after two weeks and wanted that payout at the time of their separation. And in the books, it was front-loaded, so it was theirs, and they had to pay. So if you're going to do front-loading, think these things through. You know, we're all optimistic at the, at the time of new hire, but things can go wrong. So consider whether or not front-loading works best for you, okay? Next is a brand-new leave that is uh, created this year. It is for reproductive leave loss. Under this, a parent is not gender, there's no, it's gender neutral, but parent or partner may have up to five days of unpaid leave following a reproductive loss. This may occur for up to 20 days per year. So let's say, and that is, there's no, no defined time. They don't have to take a full five days, but it's up to five days and 20 days per year. The big kicker on this one is you cannot ask for documentation of proof of the reproductive loss. So under CFRA or any, any type of other leave, you can always ask for documentation. Under this loss pro leave, you cannot ask for any documentation to support the request. So Vivian is asking, with the new paid sick leave, can employers not ask for a doctor note after three days? The policy, the statute doesn't address that. The statute simply is saying that the employee has to receive what was previously three days, they now have up to five days essentially in their PTO bank that is available for them to use. Simona is asking if an employee uses sick time for five days, can we still ask for documentation? Simona asked a really good question in that we don't want to confuse wage replacement with the statutory leave. So the statutory leave is the five days for reproductive loss. The use of sick time is a form of wage replacement. So the statute does not say anything other than this is an unpaid leave, and they can have up to five days unpaid, and you cannot ask why they're taking it. The use of sick time to provide wage replacement, I think it's a good question of can you require documentation for the use of the wage replacement? I'd be cautious about that, to be honest with you, Simona. If they said, I've had a reproductive 
loss and wish to utilize five days unpaid but seek sick time for wage replacement, I don't feel that you could ask for documentation. I think that would be getting around certainly the intent of the law. As long as they're identifying it as reproductive leave loss, not uh, CFRA. So if they specifically invoke this statute, I don't think you can ask for documentation. All right, workplace violence prevention program. You have some time on this one. This will start on July 1st, 2024. And as part of your existing IIPP plan, you have to have a section specifically aimed at prevention of workplace violence. It has to be detailed. There are requirements. We're working internally on creating policies. I know our risk advisors are aware of this statute and are aware of making sure that our members will be up to speed come July 1st. So you can talk with your labor council, talk with your risk advisor, and look to us to have a sample policy sometime before July 1st, 2024. But you will have to have this implemented by that date. And it specifically is a workplace violence prevention provision. Okay? Next, who doesn't love weed? No, I, I'm, I'm just kidding. This is a combination. This is last year's bill, uh, AB 2188, which will take effect in 11 days. And this will prohibit adverse employment action based upon cannabis use. The bill this year is SB 700, which says that it's unlawful to discriminate against cannabis use and you cannot ask about cannabis use in the hiring process and cannot test for it in the pre-employment physical. Now, and James, I'll get back to your question, but let me just finish this. There are exceptions. Exception number one is if it's a DOT-related job, and in that situation, the federal standard would still apply. Second exception is construction-related job. You want to make sure that the bulk of the duties and responsibilities in the job description relate to construction. In that scenario, you still can engage in pre-employment testing and screen for cannabis use. The third one, and, and several people ask about this, is federal funding. And they say, well, we get federal funds, therefore this section doesn't apply. That's not correct. What you have to look at is in the federal funding request and the granting of the federal funds, there has to be very specific language that mandates drug testing. Simply saying that in order to get this fund, it must be a drug-free environment is not sufficient to get around SB 700 and last year's 
Statutes AB 2188. The federal grant of funds must say specifically drug testing is required. Okay, let's go look at some of the questions that we've got here. We're going to go back a little bit here. First, Chris is asking about does does personnel policy also have to be in, a, if it's in our personnel policy, does it have to be in our IIPP? I believe the answer is yes. And again, I'm pretty sure Robin Flint, our risk control program manager, is on and ask Robin to hop in in the chat if she has some additional information. But yes, the workplace violence must be in the IIPP. Personnel policy is not sufficient. Christina asks, can the workplace violence prevention program be separate and not within the IIPP? I believe it can uh, be a separate policy that is all part of your safe workplace process. Let's see, James is asking, if we already have a workplace violence plan, do we still need to incorporate it into the IIPP? I believe the answer is yes. The statute specifically refers to your injury illness prevention plan. And these are, will any of the workplace violence standards change when OSHA issues an emergency temp standard? I do not know the answer to that, James, about what OSHA is going to do. Teresa is asking about construction inspectors. Good question. I, I don't know. You know, and this is kind of one of the issues we have is legislature passes bills, not always thinking about all the various possibilities, and we have to wait for the courts to get involved. My instinct is going to be construction inspector is not the same as engaging in construction. And so consequently, I don't think inspector, someone whose job is inspector, in and of itself will get them around, would place them in the exception to SB 700. Monica is asking, will the same rules apply if the district creates this leave as an accrual with pay? I'm not sure. Monica, I believe, is asking about this, the reproductive leave loss. I don't think you, you, this is not an accrual. You have five days per reproductive loss by statute. You don't accrue it, you have it, and up to 20 days per year. So I don't, I'm not sure when you say accrual with pay, I guess you could have, you could always make it for pay. The statute sets the floor, not the ceiling. So the floor would be unpaid leave. If your district wishes to make it a paid leave, obviously they can. It would not be in violation of the statute. All right. So safety sensitive. Jennifer is asking whether or not safety sensitive could be used to get around the statute. Safety sensitive is not contained within the statute itself. And under my recollection, safety statute could safety sensitive could also be someone who handles money. And that is not an exception 
under the statute. So I would not go by the so-called safety sensitive position listing. I believe you've got to look to the statute and the exceptions set forth in the statute. So this raises to me two very important questions or tasks for you in the coming year. One is review your job descriptions to determine who, which jobs would fall within one of these possible exceptions and making sure the job description is clear that more than half of the job constitutes construction. And second, a good opportunity for training and reminder, refresher, whatever words you want to use on reasonable suspicion because these statutes are all addressing pre-employment physicals and random testing. Nothing changes, there is no change to demanding drug test in a reasonable suspicion situation. So look to what your own, what your own training is. Don't forget the assets available through our training department and your risk advisor on uh, reasonable suspicion training. That's where I would be, those two areas, looking at my job descriptions, which you know I think should be done very often, and looking about reasonable suspicion training. Okay, thank you. Robin's jumping in with lots of valuable information on the IIPP. Misty is asking about what happens if an employee gets into a car accident in a district vehicle, we can't test for THC. So this again, this is your reasonable suspicion. If your policy is that employees are tested for THC in every accident, regardless of any of fault or type of injury, I think that's going to be in violation of the statute. This is where the reasonable suspicion comes in. If the policy is that when an employee is in an accident, supervisor goes to the scene and makes a decision whether or not they have a reasonable suspicion of impairment in that situation, I think you can then send them out for drug testing. So. That's how I would view this, Misty. A blanket drug test whenever there's an accident, regardless of anything else, I don't think will survive this statute. I think it, you have to craft a, a more specific policy that involves a supervisor making a determination of whether or not there's a reasonable suspicion before the drug testing. Ah, so Misty asked the big question here. How do we tell if someone is using or currently using or previously used? Two things here. At the time this uh, first statute was passed, there was no way to do that, which is amazing that they passed the statute with no way to determine it. What I understand is that early in November of this year, about six weeks ago, the first commercially available breathalyzer test for cannabis use was issued and it will measure edibles, any kind of THC, and it will give you levels that are 
in use. And it's a breathalyzer test. Don't know much more about it. I read about it in the Wall Street Journal. Don't know how readily available it is. We're going to learn a lot in the next six months, is all I can really tell you about the test. Without the test, I, again, I fall back to this, does your trained supervisor have a reasonable suspicion to merit a drug test? James is asking, can you send them to drug testing if they are DOT driver unless you have a reasonable suspicion after an accident? The, the rules for a DOT driver are not changed by these statutes. So a DOT driver will, you could send for a test. And then Rosanna is asking, can we still send employee for post-accident testing if they hold a CDL? Rosanna, kind of what I just said, I think the answer is no, not just they had an accident, therefore they get drug tested. I think it has to be they had an accident, supervisor makes a determination of reasonable suspicion of impairment, then I, you send them out for a drug test. Okay, these are really good questions, by the way. Thank you all. Gabby has one. Let's go back here. If we're federally funded for certain projects, can you test if they are working on that project? And Gabby, you're going to have to look at the project documents and see whether or not the federally funded projects specifically required drug testing or did the project say you must be a drug-free workplace. You're going to need the specificity of testing in the federal project documents, not a blanket statement of drug-free workplace. Okay. Again, great questions. SB 497, this will take effect first of the year. This really affects us more than you in that Whenever an employer takes an adverse action within 90 days of a protected activity, it's going to be presumed to be retaliatory, putting a greater burden on the employer to prove that it was not retaliatory. So it just makes our job more difficult to defend. And a good scenario here might be an employee comes and says, I've been sexually harassed. You go out and do an investigation. It turns out that there is not evidence to support that, and it's an employee that was about to be terminated because of poor job performance. I mean, it's not like really making up here where you get someone the week before they're about to get fired, they say, oh, this bad thing happened to me. This statute would say that it's going to be presumed to be retaliatory because the termination occurs within 90 days of them making the complaint. So, yeah. What's the takeaway? Even if you were about to fire the person an hour before they made the complaint, calendar 90 days before you go ahead with that termination. All right, that's it for the statutes. Let's look at some of these cases because they're, they're all pretty interesting. It rains. This was a real interesting one, and it really has to do with why we're having so much trouble getting a timely and quick pre-employment physicals. 
And it's because the court is now allowing a plaintiff to sue the company that does the pre-employment physical for disability discrimination. The court said that U.S. Health Works, which did perform pre-employment physicals, can be responsible under the Fair Employment and Housing Act and therefore subject to punitive damages, attorney fee awards, if they conducted a pre-employment physical that was discriminatory. And how that's been defined by the courts is, let's say the job description you're applying for is one of data entry, where you are gonna be sitting all day at a desk, but your pre-employment physical ask them to make sure you can carry up to 50 pounds, stand for eight hours, you know, the same physical requirements you would have for someone working in the field doing construction. The courts are now saying that those type of pre-employment physicals are discriminatory based on a disability because the physical requirements of the pre-employment physical do not match the requirements of the job. So, our takeaway here is look at your job descriptions. Make sure the physical requirements are not cut and paste across the entire organization, but are specifically tailored to the job that is being completed. And then make sure you, when you ask for the pre-employment physical, it's limited solely to the physical requirements of the job and doesn't go broader than that, okay? Next, this is another one, um, pretty straightforward, but in this case, it finally went to the Supreme Court that says when a spouse contracted COVID as a result of the other spouse being exposed at work, the employer does not have any duty to the non-employee spouse and therefore they couldn't sue. Pretty straightforward case. What happened here was an employee at Victory Woodworks contracted COVID at work, brought it home, and their spouse subsequently had a pretty rough time at it, and they sued Victory Woodworks. And they finally got to the California Supreme Court where they said, no, you don't have a duty of care to non-employees regarding COVID exposure. Uh, next is, again, I think we go through this almost every year, please, no rounding of time cards, okay? It's another wage and hour case, but in this case, Loma Linda University Medical Center was rounding time punches. More often than not, it went to in favor of the employee, but in one case, it didn't, and again, they said, well, we just round to the, the nearest five minutes, and the court said, no, it's, you know, we, we don't uh, want you rounding up time cards or rounding down, doing any rounding whatsoever on time cards. So this was a great, this was fun to read, should be pretty self-evident. When you've got hardcore sexually graphic misogynistic music playing in the workplace, somebody may be offended, and 
in this case that gives lots of details of the songs being played on a regular basis. They were what would mainly be considered offensive. And when the employee complained about the music being played in the warehouse, the response was, well, we're just trying to keep it to where most of the staff are happy and, you know, the customers never hear it, so it's okay. And in this case, the court said no. And when they're citing the lyrics of the song, there's, there's really no argument that these are offensive lyrics in a reasonable person test. So, to, you know, <laughs> when I first started working with member districts back in the uh, 1823 time, 1820s, 1830s, seeing pinups and adult magazines in the work area was pretty routine. Playing music now has sort of replaced that, but please, please be aware of it and kind of keep it limited. This is a great one that I've been following. I know loyalty oaths come up fairly often. We, we get it at least once or twice a year. And in this case, the Ninth Circuit said what happened was um, the employee got a job at the California State Controller. They said that I'm not going to take the loyalty oath because it puts the loyalty oath requires allegiance to the state constitution over my allegiance to God. I would affirm my allegiance to the state constitution but I will not swear to it. The controller wouldn't budge on the language. They only said swear. They wouldn't accept swear or affirm. The person objected on religious reasons. And the Ninth Circuit Federal Court said, yeah, we agree that you should have had a religious exception to the loyalty oath. So in the Bolden case, because the plaintiff wouldn't take the loyalty oath, they lost their job. And now this court is going to let them be compensated for that, uh, saying that there should have been a religious exception to the loyalty oath. If you do do loyalty oaths, which by statute you are required to do, please, my recommendation is that say swear or affirm and look at the loyalty oath and you should be okay. Okay, this is really an interesting one. The plaintiff was able to do their job, get outstanding job reviews when they did the job part-time. Ultimately, the school district decided this is a position that we need more frequently, so we're going to make it a full-time job. When the plaintiff, Price, applied for the full-time job, they were denied the position as not being able to meet the physical requirements of the job. And what Price said was, this is one of those where it's it just kind of difficult to understand, but Price said, hey, I did the job part-time. I got good performance reviews. I did it for an extended period of time. How am I not physically able to do the job just because I'll be working more hours? And again, this goes back to that pre-employment physical stuff, because that's where it came out that Price was not fit for duty. Just think these things through, right? I mean, logic and, and common sense will tell you, if you have a good part-time employee, they should be able to do that same job with more hours. And by the way, 
Price didn't look for any type of accommodation when the job changed from part-time to full-time. Price said, I can do the job. So this was just not thinking it through, really. Atella, this is one of the great fact patterns of all time. What was going on was Atella and their supervisor were very good friends, and they would text each other after hours, weekends, all the time, very frequent. Text about everything under the sun, constantly texting one another. And then one night, Atella's supervisor, who she's they've been texting, they send Atella a text of a picture, an inappropriate picture of themselves. And Atella responds by saying, hey, this is too far. You know, we're friends, but I don't appreciate you sending this. Please don't send any more to me. And the supervisor says, oh, I'm so sorry. I've been drinking. I really meant to send this to my wife. I promise not to do it again. I apologize deeply and sincerely. I'm very, very sorry. Tella responds, I understand. As long as you never do it again. And the supervisor says, I won't and then sends a video of him masturbating to her. That was, uh, Atella notifies her HR at Rite Aid. Supervisor is terminated the very next day, and Atella brings this case, not against the supervisor, but against Rite Aid, under the theory, the legal theory, that sexual harassment by your supervisor is strict liability against the employer. And the court said that the supervisor was not acting as a supervisor when they were sending the inappropriate texts. That nothing in those texts, either those specific texts or the ones in the one hour to two hours before those had anything to do with job duties and responsibilities. So they were not engaged in supervisorial type activities. And it's an interesting case because clearly it was wrong, but they really have, you know, the trend has always been strict liability for a supervisor. This was a supervisor, but did not extend that rule in this situation. Very interesting. Okay, that's all the cases and the statutes we have. I'm not gonna go through the three statutes our legislature passed this year dealing with public restrooms. I don't think any of us need to know more about that. So listen, you've been great. I've been Robert Greenfield. Thank you, have a terrific new year. And remember, we are here for you anytime. Thanks, take care everyone. Thank you for listening to JPI 5. Remember to leave us a five-star review, comment, or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. If you have a topic or guest speaker you would like us to feature or a question you would like to learn more about, please send us an email at podcast at aquajpia.com. Until our next episode, thank you for making us a part of your day.